set us free. We do ask God, would you align our hearts, align our hearts again to bring him praise, to see the very purpose for our lives, to worship the one true living God, to find all our delight in you, to find all our joy in you, Lord, to find all our contentment and peace and rest in you. God, we're longing for you. We're hungry for you this morning. We come here because we're desperate, because we're needy, because we're poor. God, we want your riches. We want the riches that are hidden in Christ Jesus. So God, we ask that you would open up your word this morning and pour yourself out. We're we're tired of our own wisdom. We're tired of our own intuitions. God, we want to hear a word from you. We want to hear from heaven. And so God, we ask this morning that you would soften our hearts, crack them open, bring us to a place where hearing your word is life. God, set us apart as your holy ones, your church, as those who live to worship you, those who live to bring you praise. Would you work powerfully among us by the power of your word and through your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. Uh, As you're taking your seat, uh, our kiddos who've been checked in can head to the lobby now. And if there's any kids who haven't been checked in, you can feel free to do that now. And I also want to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Colossians. Uh, If you're here and you don't have a Bible this morning, there's a rack of Bibles in the back. Feel free to go grab one. Uh, You can have that uh, in front of you there. This morning we're going to be reading Colossians 3, verse 18. And we're going to cover through chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians 3, 18 through 4, 1. This is what God's Word says to us. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Maybe you heard that section that I just read and you thought to yourself, why did I come to church today? Uh, You know, none of these seasons or stations that are mentioned here seem to to fit my life, seem to apply to me. And so, you know, what, what do I have to hear today? Well, undergirding this whole section is something that is profoundly important for for all of us. That yes, we're going to talk about the kind of nitty-gritty details that Paul draws to the surface, but underneath these realities, being a husband, being a wife, being a master slave, being a child, underneath these realities, what we're actually talking about this morning is something more profound. Uh, See, in this little letter of Colossians that we've been covering, 14 times in this letter, Paul uses the word Lord. But in just our nine verses that we're covering this morning, he says it eight times. Eight times the word Lord appears in our nine verses, which means that what we're really talking about beneath the surface, this greater reality that we're talking about this morning is the Lordship of Jesus. The Lordship of Jesus. What it means that Jesus is Lord is that he is in charge. It means that his opinion matters most. And it means that he will be the ultimate judge of everyone. And the reason we experience this flurry of uh, language about Jesus as Lord in our, in our passage today is because no matter what season or no matter what station of life we found, find ourselves in, the Lordship of Jesus radically reorients every single aspect of our lives. There's probably nothing in the Bible that more profoundly affects our moment-by-moment existence than the fact that Jesus is Lord. Uh, now, maybe this uh, lordship talk might sound weird to you. Maybe you've never heard that word before. But, but initially, we can just think of it as authority or, or leadership. And we see this around us in, in our world today all, all over the place. 
Um, just this last week in the, the realm of sports, uh, there was a college football coach who was fired even though the school had to pay him $75 million to get rid of him. How badly do you not want someone to be in charge that you would pay them $75 million to get lost? That you would rather give them $75 million than to allow them to continue leading your football team? But this dynamic of authority and leadership is not just in sports. It plays out all the time all over life. Who gets to tell us what the laws of our land will be? Uh, who determines how much taxes we will pay? Who, d- who decides what I do when I'm at work? Uh, who gets to determine what I do and do not do when I'm at home? Who gets to decide what I can or cannot do with my body or I can or cannot say with my mouth? These are the questions of lordship. Who's in charge? Whose opinion matters most? And who will be the ultimate judge? So this morning, more than just talking about marriage or parenting or being a child or so on and so forth, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see why it is that all of us ought to gladly submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Not only will Jesus not abuse us, but Jesus was willing to be abused for us. Someone will be our Lord, but there's nobody like Jesus. Guys, this world is broken. This world is exhausted. This world is suffering. And so we ought to be hungry for somebody who would come and show us how life really works. Someone to arrive who would just change the subject. Somebody who would show us the way life is really supposed to work. But what that will take from us is the humility to admit that we've tried it our own way and it's not working. So there's two major things that we must come alive to if we're going to find life under the lordship of Jesus Two major things, and then there's a number of minor things underneath that. The first major thing is this, that we must come alive to the reality of His Lordship. We must come alive to the reality of His Lordship. As I said, there's a lot of truth in the Bible, and some truth in the Bible impacts our life more directly than others. It's all true, but some of it has a more immediate impact on our day-to-day lives, and there's nothing in the Bible that's more immediately impactful, moment by moment, than the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how do we come alive to his lordship? Uh, Here are four ways. Four ways that we come alive to the reality of his lordship. First, we acknowledge him. Acknowledge him. In Colossians 3, 25 and into chapter 4, verse 1, I'm going to read it again. We learn that Christ's lordship, it extends to everyone. There's nobody on on the planet who's outside of his authority. This is what it says. It says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so whether we acknowledge Jesus as Lord or not, we find ourselves living under his realm. He is the king. He is the authority, whether we are happy about it or not. And so what that means is Jesus being Lord isn't dependent upon us acknowledging him as Lord. Uh, when I was younger, I um, you know, thought I was above authority. I, I like to kind of make my own rules and that sort of thing. And I went through this little stint in college where in a one-month period, I got three tickets for a seatbelt violation, and two of them were from the same officer. Um, I didn't think the law applied to me. I didn't like the law, but guess what? It didn't matter if I liked it or not. The law was the authority over me, and I had to pay regardless. So what we see with Jesus, it, it doesn't matter whether we're excited about his authority or not. He is king. He is Lord. But there's something else. There's, there's another sense in which Jesus is Lord. Uh, earlier back in chapter 2, uh, verse 6, Colossians 2, 6, this is one of the verses that we've been encouraging the church to memorize um, throughout this Colossian series. It says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So one of the things Paul is trying to show us is that what it means for somebody to become a Christian, what it looks like in someone's life, when they convert to Christianity, is that they bow the knee to Jesus. Jesus becomes their Lord. They receive Jesus as their king, as their master. 
And author and pastor Ray Ortland helps us get clear on what this does mean and what this doesn't mean. He's going to show us two pictures of what receiving Jesus could look like, one being a false accepting of Jesus, the other being a genuine, true accepting of Jesus. Uh, Here's what Ray writes. He says, there's a boardroom in every heart, big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, whiteboard. A committee sits around the table. There's the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. That kind of person can receive Jesus in either of two ways. One way is to invite him onto the committee. Give him a vote. But here's here's the problem. He says, but then he becomes just one more complication. The other way, the true way to receive Jesus he says, is to say to him, my life isn't working. Please come in and fire my committee, every last one of them. I hand myself over to you. Please run my whole life for me. This is not complication, Ray says. This is salvation. To receive Jesus as Lord, to truly embrace Jesus as Lord, is not just to add Jesus to the committee of our hearts. To receive Jesus as Lord is to fire every other thing that would be in control. To say to Jesus, my time, my gifts, my passions, my my ways of thinking, my ways of living, my actions, all of it. Here's the keys to my whole life. Slide it across the table into the hands of Jesus forever. Amen. So first, the way we come alive to his lordship is we must acknowledge him. He's Lord whether we acknowledge him or not. But we come alive to his reality of his lordship when we acknowledge him. Second, uh, second way we come alive to his, the reality of his lordship is we must learn him. We must learn him. Verses 18 through 20 say, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Uh, now, in a few minutes, we're going to dive into the, the, the details of, of this passage and, and kind of get into the weeds of it. But just initially, here's what I want to draw your attention to. The end of verse 18 and the end of verse 20. These phrases, as is fitting in the Lord and for this pleases the Lord. See, it's one thing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. That's good. That, that's essential to acknowledge him as Lord. But nobody becomes a Christian knowing everything there is to know about the Lord, right? We don't know when we become a Christian all the things that are pleasing to Jesus, what it is about our life that is fitting to Jesus. And so we have to go on this process of learning him, of of understanding what it is that does and does not please our Lord. But see, for those who have acknowledged already that our way isn't working, like people who have already said, I've tried it my way, I've blown up my life, I can't figure it out. We ought to be hungry to learn him, to learn his ways, to learn what pleases to him, because we've already acknowledged that life is found in him. So you can tell the difference, um, both from like young age, grade school, all the way up through college and grad school and and that sort of thing. You, You can tell the difference between a student who's just checking boxes, who's just going through the motions, who's just kind of doing the bare minimum, and a student who is actually hungry to learn and grow and be shaped and formed by their experience. I know uh, when I was in college at, at Coastal, um, I was one of those people, I was just kind of checking the boxes. I wasn't super passionate about, about what I was doing. I, I would skip class a lot. I just, I just, I just wanted to do the bare minimum to, to pass my classes. But then when I got to seminary, and, and it was actually what I was studying was something I was passionate about, I was hungry to learn. I was the person who stayed after class and asked my professors questions. I was the person who showed up at at office hours. I wanted these men and women who were my teachers to impress their life upon me. I wanted in that short little season of life that I had there to soak up everything I possibly could to to be formed by their wisdom, by their knowledge, by their experience. So here's the question we have to ask. For someone who has acknowledged Jesus as Lord... For somebody who's said, I can't run my own life. I I don't have what it takes. My wisdom keeps failing me. For someone who's gotten to that point in their life, which picture ought to be true of them for how they pursue learning Jesus? 
someone who's just doing the bare minimum, someone who's not really all that interested, someone who's just kind of barely checking the boxes to, to get by, or someone who has set their gaze upon Jesus and said, if life is found in him, then I want to soak it up. If life is found in him, then I want everything about my life to be formed by him, to be shaped by him. I want to ask the extra questions. I want to go the extra mile. I want to learn Jesus as the passion of my life. This is discipleship. It is enrolling in the school of Jesus to learn him, to submit to the process of being transformed by him. And here's why. We've seen the dysfunction that comes from our way of life. We've seen how bad it can get when we try to live according to our wisdom. And we've seen the beauty of the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus. And so we renounce ourselves and we run after learning Him. So we acknowledge Him, we learn Him. A third way we come alive to the reality of His Lordship is we fear Him. We fear Him. Verse 22 says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now again, we're going to get into the details of, uh, of this passage as we move forward. But initially, I just I want to point out that Paul, Paul sees that all day long, you and I have the opinions of uh, p- other people caving in all around us. We go about our life, and there's this clash of the wills right? What do I want to do with my life? What does my wife want me to do? What does the government want me to do? What does my parents want me to do? What do my friends want me to do? What does the social media mob want me to do? There are, there's this force of opinions constantly uh, crashing in on my life. And here in verse 22, Paul basically says that we all live either one of two ways. We either live to please man or we fear the Lord. Those are the two options. We either go about our lives seeking to please man, or we go about our lives seeking to please Jesus. And inevitably, what we actually do or say flows out of who we respect more. Maybe you're here and you're, you're like, no, I don't, I don't listen to anybody. I, I'm not somebody who is affected by any outside opinions. But you're following your opinion. You're still a pleaser of man. What ultimately comes out of our mouth and comes out of our life displays who we really respect more, who we really think is Lord. Um, I've uh, come to really love and appreciate the, sh- the show Survivor. Um, I know it's, it's sort of a 50-50 thing, right? Like if, you, if you've seen it and you've watched it, you know, you love it and you're all in. And if you haven't, then, then you're not. And that's okay. Hopefully I'll try to get, get you to the place where um, maybe you'd want to go home and, and check it out. I don't know. But uh, in the show Survivor, I've watched enough seasons now to know that, that when the season gets down to about six or seven contestants, inevitably what will happen is one of the contestants will win a challenge and they'll receive this awesome reward. Like they'll get to go and, and take a shower for the first time in 20 days or, the, or they'll get to go and eat like a cheeseburger feast and, you know, whatever, some awesome thing. And, and they'll be on cloud nine. Like they just won this challenge and now they get to do something great. But then Jeff, the host, puts them on the spot. He kind of throws a curveball at them. And he says, all right, now I want you to pick two of these people to come with you. And now that, that might sound nice. If you've never seen the show before, you're like, wow, what a, what a great gift. But the problem is those people have been telling everybody else that they're their favorite. You know, I care about you the most. I care about you the most. I care about you the most. But now they're put on the spot and they actually have to choose and they have to show their cards. They have to show who it is that they really care about the most. And this life that you and I live, it's full of those moments where we are put on the spot. It's full of those moments where we have to decide, is Jesus more important to me or is somebody else more important to me? Does his opinion matter more or is there an opinion of someone else or even my own that matters more? So many times, the reason that we lie is because we actually fear someone else more than we fear Jesus. So many times, the reason that our priorities get out of order is because we actually fear someone else more than we fear Jesus. Sadly, so many times we end up wasting our life because we're living for the approval of man rather than living for the glory of God. So how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? Well, I hate to break it to you, but 
There isn't some like self-help five tips to become someone who fears the Lord. It's not how this works. There's, there's not like a, a checklist of six things I can, I can share with you about how to grow in the fear of the Lord. What we're talking about, and you know, you know as you've lived through your life, you've gone about your, your life, you know this is a much deeper matter of the heart. This is about what's going on in the inside, in that boardroom that Ray talked about. So how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? Oh, in his classic book, When People Are Big and God is Small, author Ed Welch counsels us. This is what he says. He says, All experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. Since there's no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious, not other people. So that means the the most powerful way, the only way that we grow in the fear of the Lord is by embracing a life of praise and worship. It's as the awe and reverence for Jesus rises in our hearts and he actually becomes more and more and more glorious to us that in those moments where there's the clash of the wills, where there's two opinions that cross somebody else's and Jesus's opinion, because of the worship, because of the awe, because of the reverence that we have for Jesus, we go with Jesus. We fear him instead of that other person. We fear him instead of our own opinion. We go with him because we actually are in awe of him. And that leads to the final way that we come alive to the reality of the lordship of Christ is that we remember him. We remember him. Verses 23 and 24 say, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Remembering Jesus does mean that we have this kind of active moment-by-moment awareness that there is a master in heaven, that there is a Lord, that he sees it all, that he knows it all, that his eyes pierce all the way down into the motives of my heart, and that ultimately Jesus himself is the final judge that everyone will have to give an account to. Right? That is part of what remembering him means. But I think Paul has something even deeper in mind here. Uh, You'll notice that Paul adds at the end of verse 24 there a kind of awkward sentence. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. The Lord Christ. It's not a very poetic way to, to say it. You know, why does he insert, why does he jam Christ at the end of that sentence? You know, all throughout this passage, it's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, and here it's the Lord Christ. Why is he jamming that in at this moment. Well, the reason is that to remember him is not just to have a conscious awareness of him. It is to remember that the one we're being called to serve is the very same one who first served us. That this king, this Lord, this master, he is also the one who loved sinners so much that he was willing to die for them. Yes, he is the king, but he is also Christ. He is Messiah. He is Savior. And this is a great paradox of Christianity, that growing in fear, reverence, awe, and worship of Jesus doesn't fundamentally come because we're scared that he's going to punish us. That growing in the fear of the Lord doesn't fundamentally come because we're running around in our life afraid that he's going to whop us over the head if he catches us doing something bad. No, the reason that we we fundamentally grow in the fear and reverence and awe and worship of this Lord is because he was willing, God, God, eternal God, was willing to become a man, was willing to die in the place of sinners, was willing to offer up himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And that is fundamentally what melts our hearts to want to serve him, to want to submit to him. That we don't have to fear his commands. We don't have to fear coming up under his lordship. Because this Lord is the Lord who saves. This Lord is the Lord who loves. This Lord is full of grace, mercy, and compassion. He is the Lord Christ. Ed Welch, who I quoted above, he writes this a few pages later in uh, in his book. 
Uh, he's describing the fear of the Lord. And he says it includes, it includes a knowledge of our sinfulness and God's moral purity. And it, in, it includes a clear-eyed knowledge of God's justice and his anger against sin. But this worship fear also knows God's great forgiveness, mercy, and love. It knows that because of God's eternal plan, Jesus humbled himself by dying on a cross to redeem his enemies from slavery and death. This knowledge draws us closer to God rather than causing us to flee. It causes us to submit gladly to his lordship and delight in obedience. This kind of robust fear is the pinnacle of our response to God. This is how the Bible surprises us. That the fundamental way that God melts our hearts, that He transforms our hearts to want to submit, to want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ is by showing us that the Lord Jesus Christ first served us. He first loved us. Psalm 130, verse 4. We read during our worship set this morning, we read Psalm 130. Psalm 130, verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I mean, what would you expect to go in the blank there? Like, like what would you expect to be the motivation for the fear of God? But with you there is wrath. But with you there is anger. With you there is justice. That's what we expect. And yet, the Bible surprises us. It says, no, no, no. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The reason we submit to this Lord is because He has melted our hearts with His mercy, with His grace. And so we must remember Him. Yes, we must have this conscious moment-by-moment awareness that He's God, that He's sovereign, that He's Lord, that He sees, that He knows, that He will judge. But more than that, we remember who He is. He is the Lord Christ. Not just like any other Lord, not just like any other master, not like some other tyrant. No, He is the Lord Christ. Who loves us. And this leads to a second major thing that we must come alive to uh, if we will find life under the lordship of Jesus. And so second, we must come alive to the goodness of his lordship, the goodness. See, we've already been talking about this, but we need to, we need to soften our hearts even more. You and I, we, we immediately, when we think about authority, when we think about someone else telling us what to do, we, we push back from that. We recoil from that. And so if we're going to humbly submit to Jesus, we have to be utterly convinced that it is a really, really good thing that Jesus is Lord. And so here's four reasons why it is really, really good that Jesus is Lord. The first is that He establishes stability. He establishes stability. Uh, When you look at this passage as a whole, the whole thing is an an analysis of, of the order of life, the order of how life is supposed to work. I mean, God is looking at us and he's telling us not just what to do, but he's also telling us what to think and what to feel. He's telling us commands about how we ought to order our life. And again, that can be a tough thing. Immediately, our kind of gut reaction is to to push back uh, against that. But here's what we know. Here's what we know. No one being in charge, no one being in charge is not a good thing. No one being in charge simply leads to chaos. What we need, what our hearts long for, is actually stability. And what is required for stability is authority. Last Saturday, um, our Thanksgiving, we had our Thanksgiving dinner here as a church. It was so great. I uh, had such a great time. There's a, there's a number of us uh, families who have young kids. And about halfway through the night, we sent our kids, our young kids, back into the, one of these back preschool rooms so that they could go and, and play together. Uh, and listen, it was a great time, right? They had, they had a lot of fun, and, and everybody came out um, alive, no, no major injuries. It was great, okay? Um, I've never been a part of one of these moments where, you know, the parents kind of hang out and talk while the kids go off and play. I've never been a part of these moments where inevitably at some point in the, the situation, one of the kids comes running over and, and basically, in effect, says, something bad is happening, you know, we need help. So what is, one of the parents has to get up and walk down there and see what's going on. So, you know, you come around the corner, and, and, and you walk around the preschool room. There's toys flying through the air everywhere. There's a, there's a child on top of the table. The noise level is way above you know, what it should be. It's chaos. And what's needed in that moment is some stabilizing authority for someone who's in charge to, to reign in the chaos. And all Paul's doing with this passage is he's, as he's leading us in 
to understanding the authority that Jesus sets up in this world. He's just trying to say, when we all try to go at, go at it our own way, when we all just pursue our own intuitions and our own wisdom, it just leads to chaos. What we desperately need is some stabilizing authority, and only the Lord Jesus Christ can give that to us. Guys, we've tried it our own way. We've tried to pursue our own happiness in the ways that we thought were best, and yet you look around and all you see is miserable people. We've tried it our own way. No, we need somebody else. We need a king. We need Jesus. The second reason that his lordship is really, really good is that he creates nobility. He creates nobility. Verses 18 and 19 say, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It is a beautiful and noble thing. It is a dignifying and humane thing when a husband radically and sacrificially loves his wife while a wife humbly and gladly submits to her husband. That is a noble thing. That is a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. What a wife submitting to her husband means is that she has a general disposition to follow his lead, that she's committed to him. She's not going anywhere. She's with him in it till the end. And what a husband loving his wife means is that in every circumstance, in every situation in life, he's always seeking her good. That he's making regular, willing sacrifices for her betterment. This husband-wife order is different from, is radically different from the master-slave order that Paul's going to talk about, and it's even different from the parent-child order that Paul talks about, and here's why. When a husband and wife come together and are married, they become one flesh. There's a, there's a union of one flesh with the husband and wife, and so we have to be thoughtful and careful about how we interpret the application to this passage. I was thinking about it this week, and the best way I know how to shed light on the dignity of what Jesus is calling us into is by thinking together about the relationship between the pastors and the congregation. So go with me for a second and think about it. God has called pastors to exercise authority in the congregation, and he's called the congregation to submit and obey the leaders that have been placed over their charge. This is Hebrews 13. It's just one example. Hebrews 13, 17 says, it's talking to the congregation, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So he's establishing this, this relationship between pastors and churches. But here's the deal. Here's the key to understanding the pastor-congregation relationship. The congregation doesn't exist. The purpose of the congregation is not to serve the pastors. It's actually the other way around. The purpose of a pastor, the reason the church has pastors, is for the pastors to serve the congregation. So God has given pastors a certain authority, but they are to use that authority not in an authoritarian way in order to make the congregation serve them. They are to use that authority in order to serve best the congregation. And that is a really good picture of how marriage is supposed to work. God has given husbands authority in the home, but it's not like the authority he's given them is so that the wife will serve the husband. It's actually the other way around. The reason God has given authority to men is so that they will serve their wife. And what it means for a wife to submit then to a husband is to make that service that the husband does for her a joyful, enjoyable service. So I'm sure you still have a lot of questions. I know I do. Allie and I, my wife Allie and I, spent a lot of time this week talking through this. What does this mean? What does this not mean? Um, but here, here would be the win for me, the greatest win with regard to our marriages today would be if every spouse in this room, every married couple in this room went home and actually had a conversation today about this. Have the courage to look at your spouse and ask, do you see this in me? Are there ways you think I could change? 
Are there ways I could love you better? Are there ways I could submit to you better? I, 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 please don't let today go by. Please don't let this opportunity go by without sitting down and having this conversation. Work together since the goal of your marriage is God's glory, since the one who's established the order in your marriage is God himself, work together to discuss what it would look like to honor God in your marriage, in your family. Take some time and do that. Then in verses 20 and 21, Paul continues, he says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become Discouraged. So simply put, children are supposed to obey their parents, but at the same time, parents are not supposed to provoke their children. And if you pull these two things together, here's what you get. Uh, we mainly have uh, parents in the room, so here's what you get when you pull these two things together. Parents must discipline their children, but they also must discipline their children in ways that honor God. You must discipline them because they're called to obey, but you also must Discipline them in a ways that honor God because God is your father. He is your master. He is your Lord. And so it does honor God for a parent to spank a child. But it does not honor God for a parent to beat a child. It does honor God for a parent to speak directly to a child. But it does not honor God for a a parent to belittle or mock a child. It does honor God for parents to teach their children to respect the authorities in their life. But it does not honor God for a parent to publicly embarrass a child simply because they are embarrassed by the child's behavior. We must discipline, but we always discipline in ways that honor God the Lord. And here's the key. The end of verse 21, lest they become discouraged. Paul's point is this, you must discipline your child, but the discipline that you enforce, it ought to encourage them. It ought to lift them up. It ought to build them up, not tear them down. And then Paul moves outside the home on the rest of our passage for today. He writes, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, I want to be really clear. Nowhere in the Bible uh, does God condone slavery. This is not talking about chattel slavery, which existed in the early years of the United States of America. That's not what Paul is talking about at all. Um, It's not a perfect uh, synonymous relationship to our employer-employee relationship, but it's a lot more like that than it is chattel slavery, where someone, because they needed work, would go and bind themselves to someone who was over them and submit to them for a certain period of time in order to earn wages for their life. And so the way we apply this to ourselves is to consider the structure of the workplace. There are some who are in charge, and then there there are others who submit to other people. But here's Paul's point. Whether you're the one in charge or you're the one who's underneath, it doesn't matter. Either way, you are to remember that ultimately Jesus is Lord. And so if you're here this morning and you're someone who's over other people, you have leadership, authority, and charge over other people in your life, Paul's reminding you, don't forget that you have a master in heaven. And don't forget how your master in heaven treats you. He is kind with you. He is gentle with you. And he is always just and fair with you. So when you turn around and lead the people who are under you, you reflect your master in heaven and you remember that you will give an account to your master in heaven. And if you're here this morning and you're not in charge, you have someone who's over you. Here's Paul's point. You don't go to work as if you are there to please that person. 
You go to work as if you are to please Jesus. You don't go to work as if the person who writes your paycheck is your boss or your manager. You go to work as if the person who writes your paycheck is Jesus himself. You don't live as a people pleaser. You don't go to work doing the bare minimum. You go to work every day as if it's Jesus himself who you are honoring with your work, with what you do every day. So in, t- in totality, here, here's the picture, here's the nobility, the dignity, the humaneness of this whole picture together. That no matter what season and no matter what station of life we find ourselves in, every season, every station is an opportunity to reflect the Lord Jesus. That is nobility. That when wives are called to submit, they remember that Jesus submitted to death for our salvation. When husbands are called to love their wives, they remember that Jesus so loved his bride that he laid down his life for his bride. When children are called to obey their parents, they remember that Jesus Christ too, who was eternal God, willingly took on humanity and for the first time in all of eternity, submitted his human will to the Father's in order that you and I might receive a perfect righteousness for our salvation. When slaves, when servants, when bondservants are called to submit to their masters, they remember that Jesus Christ too, he took on the form of a servant. And guess what? The people he served, they weren't good people. They were sinners. You, me, he served us. And when masters consider who it is that they have as a master, they get excited that they get to be ambassadors of Jesus in this world, exhibiting the same kind of loving authority, not authoritarian authority, loving authority that Jesus Christ himself rules this world with. How could, how could there be anything more noble, anything more dignifying than to be invited into a life where we get to reflect the Lord Christ, the Lord Jesus? And we must remember this. We must remember who, who our Lord is. This passage is not just about getting it right when it comes to the, these commands. This passage is about remembering who the Lord is. And that's especially important because, listen, inevitably, Inevitably, we will all fail. We will all fail. You can't read a passage like this and be leaving here today patting yourself on the back. No. No, you're brought again to your need. Your need for Lord Christ. The King who's the Savior. The authority who humbled Himself. And as He forgives us again and again and again, our hearts melt and we fear him more and more and more. Quickly, briefly, there's two other things we want to see from this passage about coming alive to the goodness of his lordship. And here's why. Sometimes, sometimes what it means to obey Jesus puts us in hard situations. Sometimes what it means to submit to his lordship according to his order, his stabilizing authority, it's not what we would have chosen for ourselves. And so we need... Two more things, two more quick things that help us feel the goodness of his lordship. And so third this morning, uh, a third reason is that he shows no partiality. He shows no partiality. Uh, Look first just at verse 25. It says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Why does Paul add that phrase, that there is no partiality? Well, he wants to remind us that, that Jesus doesn't assess our lives based on the externals. Jesus doesn't look at the master and look at the servant and sort of have two different rubrics that he assesses them by. Jesus doesn't look at men and look at women and have two different rubrics that he assesses them by. No, it's so hard for us to get it in our heads that God's value system is not the same value system as this world. Right? So many of us have been bought into this false idea that the value of someone's life is how far they've climbed on the ladder of, of, of the rungs of this life. That what a successful life looks like is to move up and up and up and up. And Paul is reminding us, Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's not impressed. He actually doesn't care whether you're the bondservant or the master. That's not what he cares about. 
He doesn't care whether you're the employer or the employee. That's not what makes his heart sing. What Jesus cares about is the heart. His eyes cut through the outward distinctions that we all tend to make. And he says, there's no partiality here. And in this sense, I love this truth because it both calls the lowly up and it also humbles those who are proud and exalted. See, maybe we're here this morning and, man, we think, man, I've really done something with my life, you know. I've, I've really made it. And we kind of find our identity and, and how successful we've been and how awesome we've done in life. And then, and then Jesus looks at us and he says, I don't, I don't see you as any better than the other person. And it humbles us. It brings us down. It keeps us honest. It keeps us from walking around with the big head as if we're better than other people. But maybe we're here this morning and it, it just feels like we've never caught a break. It just feels like we've always been on the, the wrong end of things. It feels like life just, it just feels like we just can't quite turn the corner. And, and we're tempted to believe maybe, maybe Jesus forgot me. Maybe he doesn't care about me. But this reality that he shows no partiality means the slave and the master will receive the same inheritance. Notice that when Paul works through this passage, he speaks directly to people. He doesn't speak to the master about the slave. He speaks to the slave. He doesn't speak to the parent about the child. He speaks to the child. There's nothing more dignifying than Christianity. Nothing more humane than Jesus Christ, who shows no partiality, who doesn't care if you're eight years old or you're the CEO of some massive company. It's, he's not impressed. And that both keeps the proud low and it raises the humble up. And that leads to the final reason why it's good that Jesus is Lord. Because he rewards appropriately. He rewards appropriately. I'm going to read one more section from 23 to 25. We've already massaged it out, but there's just a few more thoughts here. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord... You will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. One of the reasons that Paul is landing here is he knows that submitting is not in our nature, that coming up under the lordship of anyone, that listening to anybody, Jesus or anybody else, is not what we naturally would expect. And one of the reasons why, some of it is our fault. Some of it is our own sin. Some of it is we have a rebellious nature. But there's also this other side of it, which is we've had people take advantage of us. We've had leaders who weren't good. We've had people who made our life worse. And so when we're wrestling with our own hearts of whether to follow Jesus, whether to listen to his commands, whether his authority really is good, Paul wants us to remember that Jesus has promised to make all things right. He wants us to wrestle with our own hearts and rem remind ourselves there's not one injustice that has been done against us that he won't repay. There's not one thing that we've done for obeying Jesus, following Jesus, Submitting to some authority in our life, some person, there's not one thing that in the end Jesus won't make right. And he wants us to wrestle with our own hearts in those moments when we, when we just don't want to submit, we just don't want to obey, we just don't want to, but then we fight our hearts and we say, no, 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 no. Jesus is going to make this right in the end. Life is found under his lordship. Life is found because he is the one who's in charge. He is the one whose opinion matters most, and he is the one who we will all ultimately stand before as the judge. On that day, he's going to give out a, a rich inheritance to his people, and there's going to be a payday. So all in all, we must acknowledge the goodness of Christ's lordship. Here's where we land this morning. Here's, here's, here's the deal. Someone will be the lord of our life. Someone's ruling your life. Someone is determining where you go, what you say, who you sleep with, how you treat people, whether you lie or not. Somebody is Lord. There's nobody. There's nobody who deserves to be the Lord more 
than Jesus Christ. He is the Lord Christ. He is the Lord who's sovereign, who's over, who sees, who knows, whose eyes pierce through the externals down into the heart, and He is the one who is willing to serve us, to die for us, to offer Himself up for us that we might have life in Him. Where else can you find a Lord like that? So today, some of us, some of you here, some of us here, need to call a board meeting in our hearts. And we need to fire anybody whose name is not Jesus Christ. Some of us who are spouses need to go home and we need to have an honest, courageous conversation where we talk about what does the lordship of Jesus mean for our home? What does the lordship of Jesus mean for our family? Some of you here, you just needed to be washed over again this morning, reminded that Jesus is not harsh, that his commands are not burdensome, that this Lord, this King, he is forgiving, merciful, gracious. He's good. But for all of us today, no matter matter our season, no matter our station, we all need to come alive to the reality and the goodness of of the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we might be able to sing in our hearts, He is Lord, He is Lord, He is Lord. Let's pray. God, I for one know um, the tragedy of trying to follow my own way, of trying to pursue my own happiness, using my own imagination and intuitions. Uh, Lord, I'm convinced that I just make a mess of things. And so I pray that you'd bring us all to that place where we honestly, humbly admit that we need you. We need you to lead. We need you to speak. We need you to show us. And then, Lord, whatever your word says, whatever it says, we're, we're excited. We're open. We want to come on the journey of learning you. God, thank you. Thank you for melting our hearts. Thank you for drawing us in through your love to see that we can trust you, to see that there's no chance if we follow you that we'll be abused, to see that you are the one who was willing to be abused for us. God, we ask that you would melt our hearts into submission to gladly, willingly offer ourselves wholly and completely to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.